Hey, want to draw your attention to God's Word? Printed in your bulletin. This morning, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper um, from Matthew 26. Uh, there is a small story in between verses 19 and 26, and it's the story of Judas and Jesus saying, hey, one of you is going to betray me, and all the disciples are going to are like, is it me, is it me? And it is certainly worth preaching on and thinking about, but this morning we're just focusing on the actual Lord's Supper and the institution of it by Jesus himself and tying it into the Easter season. So with that being said, draw your attention to God's Word. From Matthew 26, verses 17 and 9, through 19, and then 26 through 29. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare you, for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is God's word. One of the unique elements of our church that many of you recognize and know is that we participate in weekly, uh, a, a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now this might be new for some of you. It certainly is for me. You see, even though I preside over this church and the pastor, I'm the one that determines how often we celebrate this meal. I have the strangest history with the Lord's Supper especially from being in the church my whole life. You see, I am the son of a former Roman Catholic who grew up during a time in the Roman Catholic Church when the only thing, when, when, when they celebrated Mass, the, when they did Mass, it was all in Latin. And so my mom grew up listening to a priest speak Latin, and it just went over her head. And as you can imagine, to her, all the things that she did every Sunday when she went to church, it was just ritual, ritual, ritual. This is what you do. And so before I was born, my mom kind of was called out of that ritualistic religion and, and, and found Jesus. And, and one of the things, and I, and I would say it's an overreaction, but I can't blame her, is that she said, anything that reeks of ritualism, we're going to jump away from. And so we started going to this church that rarely, if ever, celebrated the Lord's Supper. And so as a child in a church, the Lord's Supper wasn't something that I knew. In fact, the church that we went to, the, the church that I associate my childhood with most, I believe, and I can't quote this exactly, I believe they celebrated the Lord's Supper four times a year, and it was never on the Sunday mornings from which we were there. It was always Sunday night, once a quarter, and my family, and I'm one of four, kids, it's just hard. We never went. And so here I am raised in the church with a mother who, who, who kind of pushes anything that seems ritualistic away and a church that rarely ever does it. I cannot tell you from my childhood when I even thought of the Lord's Supper. And yet here I am as a pastor and we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. And the question I want to present to you, and I even question to myself, as we consider what the Lord's Supper is, is this. 
Does it really matter that we participate in the Lord's Supper? Is it a meaningful and significant part of the church? Because if, if I, as a child, I never partook it, yet here I am as a pastor, never took it, what meaning and what significance does it have? It's a good question. Does this make any difference? Does the Lord's Supper make any difference for us in our Christian walk? Here's the thing about it. As a pastor, it's vitally important for me to help you understand what you are participating in. That it's not just this ritualistic practice that we just in, in, in partake in every week. Yet so much of the church just falls right into that. This is what you do. You partake in it. You just follow the person right in front of you. You take the bread, dip it in the wine as we, we do here. Take it and go back to your seat and you go on with your life. And that is just not the way it's supposed to be done. And, and then, there's, then there's those of you that might not even be Christians that are just like, you know, what is this thing that you, you Christians do all the time? Why is it you're, you're celebrating this Lord's Supper? And, and, and for those of you that find yourself in this category, uh, here's what I want you to know about what we're going to be looking at today. What we do in the Lord's Supper explains so much of our faith. And so as we dive in and look at what this Lord's Supper is, I want you to know that this table, what we call the table, or this supper communicates so much about what we believe. But here's the thing. Whether you don't know anything about the Lord's Supper or you just find yourself finding the you know, monotonous going about it, we've got to consider what it is because it is indeed very meaningful and significant. Very. You know, many of us don't typically associate this table with the Easter season. For some reason in our minds, maybe it's because we do it every week. Uh, I, maybe, I don't know. But for some reason, the Lord's Supper is separated from Easter season. But that is definitely not the case in the way that Scripture presents itself. The Lord's Supper was instituted. That means that Christ was, Jesus himself said, this is a meal. And he did it 24 hours before he was crucified. 60 hours before he was raised from the dead. We shouldn't have the Lord's Supper and the, and the resurrection of Christ from the dead far from one another. No, they're deeply in, and intimately intertwined. And so in this season, as we consider um, where we're going and how Easter changes everything, I want you to know that the Lord's Supper indeed changes everything. It changes everything to how we live and work. And we see that in these words of Jesus. And so... I want to take the time to examine the words of Jesus this morning so that those of you who have the tendency to take the Lord's Supper kind of just ritualistically, you might have a new appreciation and begin to take it with more faith and know Jesus like you've never known before. And for those of you that are not Christians, that you begin to really understand what it is us Christians believe. So we're going to look at Jesus' words from the night that he instituted this supper to be done. What is it about these words that Jesus speaks in this home that changed the way that disciples of Jesus viewed everything? There's three things that I want us to look at this morning. The Lord's Supper and God, the Lord's Supper and the church, and the Lord's Supper and the Christian. Those are the three points we're going to be looking at. If you have an outline, you can follow along with that. But let's first look at how the Lord, the words of Jesus in the institution of the Lord's Supper speaks about God. The Lord's Supper and God. 
there are two things that I want to draw your attention to from the Lord's Supper and God. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention that the Lord's Supper speaks to is God as our Redeemer. The Lord's Supper speaks to us that God is our Redeemer. In verses 17, 18, and 19 of our text, you will see that the Lord's Supper is intertwined. It is deeply connected with this event called Passover. Three times Passover is mentioned. 17, 18, and 19. If we're going to have an understanding of what the Lord's Supper is, what it is we participate, you've got to see that the Lord's Supper is intertwined with this event called the Passover. And so I want to take you way back in history. Let's jump in the Back to the Future time machine. And I don't know the date, but it was a long, long time ago when the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, found themselves in Egypt. This is where we find the significance of the Passover. What is the Passover? Well, the Passover is the story of God redeeming these Israelites, these Jews, these Hebrews, out of Egypt. And the story begins with the oppression of the Jews at the hands of the Egyptians. The Egyptians never liked the Jews. They just kind of put up with them. But if you put up with something for a long time, you begin to hate something. And that's exactly what happened to the Egyptians. And they went from bearing, bearing with the Jews and like, yeah, you guys go up to Goshen and, and just stay out of our business to saying, hey, we can utilize these people. And they begin to enslave them. And this is what you see in the first few chapters of Exodus. The Jews being enslaved by the Egyptians. The Jews being oppressed. We know from, from the book of Exodus that, that it was so oppressive that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, was even um, commanding the midwives to kill the children, the male children of the Israelites, so as to not keep growing in size so that maybe, just maybe, the Israelites would overtake them. And this oppressive, this burdening forced the Jewish people to cry out to God, and God heard their cry, and he sent a deliverer. Now, you might know who that deliverer was. His name was Moses, and he had a unique position in the world. He was raised in the house of the king of Egypt, even though he was a Jew. Though he was ostracized for a period of time, God used Moses to go back to Pharaoh and to speak truth to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. And the Pharaoh said, yeah, right, I ain't letting people go. You realize what this people does for my economy? And he hardened his heart and said, no, you can't go. And so God began to send plagues, one after the other, turning the Nile River into blood, gnats and frogs and hail and thunder and all, all these things that oppressed the Egyptian people. And what God was showing the Egyptians was this, I am much greater than you are. And you're going to hold on to my people, but I am going to strike you down. But time and time again, the Egyptians hardened their heart and would not let the Israelites go. And finally, the last plague, which is where we find the Passover, came. The last plague that God gave to tell, tell Egypt to do is this. On the day that the Lord comes and visits Egypt, every firstborn child, male child of Egypt, and firstborn beast of Egypt will die. I will kill the firstborn to show that my power is greater than you, Egypt. And Israel, it's coming to you too, but there is a way for you to allow me to pass over your home. And here's the way you do it. You need to take a lamb. And you need to take the lamb 
on the 10th day of the first month of the year. And you need to let that lamb stay with you for four days. And on the fourth day, you need to kill the lamb. And you need to take the blood of the lamb and you need to put it on your door. And you need to show that we are covered in the blood so that when I come, a sacrifice has been made for the firstborn in your house. And you need to take that lamb and you need to eat it. And if your children talk about, why are we doing this? You tell them, God is taking us out of Egypt. God is removing us. And if you want to put it simply, God is redeeming us out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. To be redeemed means to be bought. And God is indeed buying Israel out of Egypt with the blood of the Lamb or the firstborn son. You see, these... Now let's, let's go back to Jesus with the disciples in the upper room. Or I guess it's the upper room, in this house. These are the stories that are circling in the minds of these disciples. Because they were commanded as Jews to celebrate this Passover year after year to remember that God had redeemed them out of Egypt. That, that no longer they're slaves to Egypt. That God has bought them and freed them from Egypt. These are the stories going through their mind. And so when they're partaking in this meal, they're going, okay, we're celebrating the Passover. But look at what Jesus says in the story. He takes bread and he says, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Now there's a couple things I want you to see. They were commanded to eat a lamb on the Passover night. But this is not a lamb. This is bread. Why is there no account of a lamb in the story that Matthew provides for us? Because that is a part of the Passover. Why? It's an interesting and, and curious thing. Do you know why? Because Jesus is the lamb. When Jesus came onto the scene and his ministry began, he went to John the Baptist to be baptized him. And John the Baptist, who preceded him, said these very words. Behold, the lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. When John said those words, he sees Jesus as the Passover lamb, the lamb whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins and more particularly for redemption from sin and death. For the redemption of Israel from Egypt by the blood of the lamb that took place on Passover is the same redemption that Christ is proclaiming to the disciples. I am the lamb whose blood was shed for my people when you take this bread and you drink this cup, what you are remembering is that God is your Redeemer. That Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on flesh and became a sacrifice for us who needed it. That we might be redeemed from sin and from death. You see, this meal teaches us something about God. That God is our Redeemer. The second thing that this supper teaches us about God is that God is also our sustainer. He is our sustainer. Of course, the Israelites were set free from Egypt after the Passover. And they're in the wilderness. And they have to go to the promised land, which is a significant distance. If you have any idea of the geography of even present-day Egypt to Israel, it's a decent amount of way. And it's a decent distance. And so... 
mostly desert, and the Israelites, who were so, there were so many people, all the different challenges of, of feeding the people, taking care of the sanitation. There's a lot of challenges that go in with, I guess it's roughly two million people wandering through this wilderness. And they began to be in need of food. And do you remember what happens in Exodus 16? They cry out to God and they say, you brought us out here so that we would die. We at least had food in Egypt. And God said, I'm going to provide for you. And you remember what he provides for the Israelites in the wilderness? This thing called manna, bread, bread to live by. And every morning, bread was on the, on the floor for them to be consumed. And every night they had to get rid of it because every morning they had to wake up depending on God to provide the bread that they needed for the journey they were on towards the promised land. This too is on the minds of the disciples when they're listening to Jesus say, take, eat, this is my body. He's holding bread. And what Jesus is showing you is this. I am the one who sustains you in your life. I don't just redeem you out of Egypt, I sustain you. And so my friends, when we come to this meal, not only do we celebrate the redemption that we have through Jesus' blood, we also remember that it is Jesus who sustains us. He gives us his bread that we might continue to live, continue to trust him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if you don't eat my bread, you have no part with me. I am the bread of life. And he's saying, I am the manna you need to sustain. This is the things we remember in the Lord's Supper about God. He is our Redeemer, and He is our Sustainer. I want to tell a little bit about my life and journey in the Christian faith. Like I said, I was raised in the church, but it wasn't until I got to college where the faith really started to come alive. And one of the things about faith, as is common, is that, and where's my Bible? Is it under there? Of course it is. One of the things about my faith and the impact of it is I began to read the poetry of the Bible. And there's a lot of poetry in the Bible. And like many, many of you who love poetry, even poetry in the world, songs that are sung, it can have a very deep impact into our, our mind and in our psyche. Like poetry can form us and shape us. And in this time when I was in college, the poetry I was reading was the book of Isaiah. And, and, and for some reason, the poetry of Isaiah really started to hit my heart like never before. You see, I, I thought of God as demanding that I obey Him and, and follow Him and the sin that I had in my own life, that I had to get rid of it. I had to, I had to somehow work really hard to, to, to do this. And then, and then I read Isaiah 59. And I started to be like, yeah, 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 that, that's me. And here's what Isaiah 59 says. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. God, I know you wanted righteousness. I'm trying really hard, but I can't do it. I, I get what Isaiah is saying. And then he goes like this. We hope for light and behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. If you want to know something about my childhood and thinking about God wanting me to obey him all the days of my life, what pressure that put on me. 
what difficulty that put on me. When I read these words from Isaiah, I said, that is me to a T. And I kept reading. I'm going, my eyes, I know it's cheesy because it's the Bible. You're not supposed to be like, but my eyes are like bug eyes when I'm reading this stuff. I'm like, this is exactly my life. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth is stumbled in the public squares. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. I'm going, yes, this is exactly what it is. What am I to do? I'm enslaved by sin. God, how do I deal with this? I can't rid myself of my sin. And then I read these words. And I literally am moved to tears. I, I can remember exactly where I was. I was in the youth room of my church when I read these words. And I just, I don't remember if I fell down. But I mean, I, I'm like, my spirit just fell prostrate on the floor when I read these words. It's Isaiah 59, verse 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. He wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm. His own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to the deeds, he will repay. And this is what I learned. I realized this. I can't do it. I am enslaved by sin. I can't get away from sin. I try, I try, I try, but I can't. Justice is far from me. I'm growling like a bear and wandering like a blind man. And Jesus is my redeemer. Jesus is the one who sets me free from the sin I can't get away from. And Jesus is the one that sustains me. His own arm works salvation for me. And so... This is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We celebrate our God who has freed us from sin and death through the breaking of his body, the blood being poured on the doorposts of our own heart. It's not up to us. It's up to him. Our God is our redeemer. He paid the penalty for our sin. He paid for our debt. When we take the Lord's Supper, we do not take the Lord's Supper in vain. We remember that our God is our redeemer. We remember that our God is the one that sustains us as we move towards the promised land, time with him. You see, the Lord's Supper teaches us about God. And it is beautiful. And it should change you. It should change the way you view your God. He is not an exacting God. He is a God who works salvation for you through his own body being broken for you. So the Lord's Supper teaches us about God, number one. The Lord's Supper also teaches us about the church. When Jesus is instituting this meal and he's talking to them, he looks at them after he says, take, eat this, my body. He, he takes the cup, verse 27, and when he had given thanks, he says to them, drink of it, all of you. Drink of it, all of you. This all of you tends to be missed by us oftentimes, especially when we're coming to the Lord's table. But what is the significance of the all of you? Here's the significance of this all of you. There is no hierarchy in the church. If you belong to the church, you belong because you drink of the cup of the new covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. 
The way you get into church is two things. You recognize that you are bad and you look to Jesus. There's no people that are holier than others. There's no people that are better than others. There's no people who somehow magically make themselves to be amazing people. We all drink from the same cup. Rich or poor. Sinner or saint. If you belong to the church, you recognize that you don't have any right to the church except for this, that the blood of the covenant, which is God's blood shed for you, gets you into the door. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we take it next to people who look far different than us. We take it with people who are far ahead of us in the Christian life. We take it next to people who don't look like us. We all drink of it in the same manner. The church is not a place of hierarchy. Yet this is often how we experience it. I don't know how you, have you ever been around celebrities? What do you get when you get around celebrities? What, what's, 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 does your heart start beating a little faster? Oh man, it's a famous person next to me. Do you take your phone out? Do you want to take pictures? I think there's two different types of people with celebrities. There's the people that want to play it cool. And then there's the people that are like, like look at this. And I've had some chances to be around. I'm, I'm, I play it cool. I play it cool. But I, I still think it's, I'm like, so side story. I got, I got to play golf right next to one of the best golfers in the world, Ricky Fowler. And I totally played it cool. Like, I, like I'd been there before. But one of the best golfers who I look up to, I'm like, Ricky Fowler's right behind me. And of course, when I come here, I'm telling you, guess where I play golf next to? I play next to. You know, that's my own take. But here's the thing about the celebrity culture. That celebrity culture finds its way into the church. I, I know that there are men and women in the church that many of you look up to. And, and, and there's almost like this, that, that reaction. Do I just keep a cool distance with them? Or do I like obsess with them and like take pictures with them and then put it on my Instagram like I'm... And it, it creates this hierarchy in the church. That's the reality of it. We, we think... We think people like Tim Keller or um, pastors or uh, Beth Moore or whatever, whoever you look up to, that, that, that these people are somehow, you know, like holy and awesome and we got to keep, keep our distance. And what, I, what this all of you, drink of it, all of you rem reminds us of is this. You know, those people, not only do they put their, their pants on the same way that you do and butter their bread the same way that you do, but they're in the church the same way that you are as well. And we shouldn't create this hierarchy with them. We can respect them, but we shouldn't honor them as if they're somehow holy because this is what Jesus teaches us in the church. We're all in the same way. We're all in through the blood of Jesus who is shed, which we commemorate when we drink of the cup. One of the things, and we don't do this just for hygienic reasons, but one of the things that some church traditions do is they all drink from the same cup. Now, we're not doing that, okay? <laughs> I don't want to discourage you from doing it. But here's the truth. We're all dipping from the same cup. We're all in the same way. We all acknowledge ourselves to be sinners, and we're all in because of Jesus. And the Lord's Supper teaches us this about the church. We're all sinners saved by grace in Jesus. So when you take the Lord's Supper, don't, don't fall into the belief that there's this hierarchy and that maybe one day that you can somehow get into it. No, there is no hierarchy.
This is what the Lord's Supper teaches us about the church. So the Lord's Supper teaches us about God. It teaches us about the church. And the last thing it teaches us about is a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. It teaches us something about Christian. What does Jesus say when, he, when he t- he's teaching them what it means to drink of the cup? He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for what? For the forgiveness of sins. If you want to know what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, what we are doing is we are tasting our forgiveness. We are tasting our forgiveness. Let me me just speak very truthfully. I don't see forgiveness being the atmosphere from which the church lives, especially amongst brothers and sisters. Oftentimes I see just kind of a sweeping under the rug of, of pain. And, and one of the things that really has always startled me, especially in the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I, I wonder, okay, we ask God for forgiveness and he grants it to us, but we were so seldom to grant forgiveness to others. And I wonder, do we really understand the forgiveness that God offers to us? Because the truth is, if we really understood the forgiveness that God offers to us, then the atmosphere from which we will swim in, the atmosphere from which we will live, will be an atmosphere of forgiveness. But we don't do that. And so we don't even think about forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things that we can ever do. Because forgiveness releases the control that we have against one another. If you harm me, I will hold it against you. Because I'm controlling you now. But forgiveness says, I am releasing that control that I have to you. I am giving it to God and I'm allowing bygones to be bygones. I'm letting God control the situation. You see, as Christians, we have been forgiven a massive debt. The wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans. You have a debt and we've all sinned. We've sinned before a holy God. For those of you that read CBR, we read of Israel going to Mount Sinai. And if it didn't make you quake in your boots when you read it this week, then you're probably not reading it. Because our God is a holy God. And you don't go near him. He's righteous. And he's strong. And he's profound. And don't you dare presume upon God because he will strike you down. Moses couldn't even go before him. He He had to be away from him. And then in a cleft of a rock. We don't understand the depth of our sin. Meaning we don't even understand the depth of the forgiveness that we have. You see, as Christians, we have been forgiven. The debt has been paid. It has been wiped clean because of Jesus' death on the cross. His blood poured out. The blood of the covenant. I read this story this week. I'm going to read it to you. The writer Aldo Savico tells the story of his friend DDA. DDA was 11 years old when he witnessed the killing of his mother, a street vendor in Medellin, Colombia. She was shot and killed with 38 bullets, and he was right next to her when she dropped dead. As one can imagine, following his mother's traumatic death, DDA went down a self-destructive path and embraced a life of drugs, alcohol, and crime. I mean, can you blame him? In those years, all he thought about was retaliation and vengeance. People in the neighborhood told him who had killed his mom, and he wasn't living far from DDA's home. And so DDA began to plan plan his vengeance against this man. 
He collected guns and even grenades so that he might kill him. At night, he would, he would cry and think of how he would kill his mother's assassin. Thankfully, he never found the courage to do so. The opportunity for change arrived when a friend belonging to a Christian church approached DDA. When he was invited, DDA was very skeptical and dismissive at first, but eventually he accepted the invitation of his friend. It was there he learned of the forgiveness that Jesus has towards him. And in realizing this forgiveness, he realized that the hatred he was harboring in his heart was consuming in his soul and was actually killing him. And so he found the strength and courage to forgive the man who had killed his mother. One day, DDA saw the killer sitting on the street curb, and he went to him and sat next to him. He looked at the man and said, why did you kill my mom? The man broke down in tears. And now, there we go. Those tears were for DDA, the confirmation that the man was the one who had shot his mother. Sometime later, DDA ran into the man again. He went and told him, I don't know why you killed my mother, but here's the thing. I forgive you. He embraced the man, and the man once again broke down in sobs. Who are you in that story? You are the man sitting on the curb. You are the man who is guilty of sin and death. And this is what Jesus does. And this is what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus comes near. He communes with you. He sits down next to you and puts his arm around you and says, I forgive you. This is the atmosphere that we live in. This is what we taste when we partake in the Lord's Supper. We are the man who's been forgiven of a great debt. And we remember that when we partake in the Lord's Supper. Christians, this is who you are. You are the forgiven. In the Lord's Supper, we remember who God is, who we are as a church, and who we are as Christians. We are the forgiven ones. I want to go back to a question that I posed earlier. Did my ritualistic upbringing, and it was ritualistic, of not partaking in the Lord's Supper make any difference? I'm starting to believe that it did make a difference. And it was actually a detrimental difference. When I look at the way uh, which I experienced God, see, I knew God when I was growing up. I knew of Him. I knew of His redemption. I knew of His salvation. I knew of His church. I knew His forgiveness. But I didn't know it. Like, I knew it here, but I didn't know it here. And when I went off to college, this is when I began to really know it in my heart. And one of the things that followed closely behind, knowing it deep in my heart, was the partaking of the Lord's Supper. You see, when I began to go to college, I started to take the Lord's Supper through my church, and I started to do it on a much more regular basis. And what I began to do is I began to taste and see that the Lord indeed is good. I remembered that Christ, in taking the Lord's Supper, has redeemed me from sin and death. I remember that it is Christ's body which sustains me in this journey. I remember that the church is not one...
<laughs> I remember that the church is not a place of hierarchy, that all are in the church because of his grace. And how am I, how am I supposed to communicate after that happened, right? <laughs> See, when I started to take of the Lord's Supper, I began to taste, like actually begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so, my friends, in just a moment, I'm going to summon you to the Lord's table to take the very meal that Christ himself instituted the night before he was killed. When you come, I want you to remember that God is our redeemer and our sustainer. It is the, he is the one who shed his blood so that you might know God and walk with him and be sustained by them. That we do it together and we receive this grace together. There's no hierarchy. And that we do experience his forgiveness. This is what it means to take the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the ways in which you nourish our hearts and our souls. Specifically, we give you thanks for the Lord's Supper. Lord, there is certainly a mystery that, that goes on when we partake it. There's so many theological nuances, especially amongst different denominations, and, and certainly that can, can wear us out, and that's not the point. But you've given it to us to remember who you are, to remember who who we are, both as a church and as a people. And so I pray that all of us, as we, as we prepare ourselves to come and, and receive your body and your blood shed for us, that we would be moved deeply in our, an appreciation for what it is that you have done for us and that we might be nourished deep in our hearts and souls. Would you do this now? In Jesus' name, amen.